Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and once again, uh, welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And we've got a, a real treat today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Guy Walters, author of uh, numerous books um, about Nazi Germany, uh, with forthcoming uh, forthcoming title uh, about uh, Joseph Mengele uh, coming out um, in the uh, foreseeable future. And today we're looking at an aspect of history which is at once um, highly mythologised and yet with a kind of a, a fascinating core of, uh, of truth to it. And that is the escape of Nazi war criminals to South America, um, a, a topic where kind of fact and fiction have become so blurred over the years we really do need an expert to help navigate these kind of complexities. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Guy Walters to the Explaining History podcast. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast now um, Guy Walters. Um, and uh, welcome, Guy. We are going to talk uh, today about the um, the legacy, really, or of the Second World War and the um, the, the the fate for for uh, want of a better word of those Nazi war criminals who evaded justice and uh, escaped to um, to South America. So uh, I think I think the first question, Guy, is how did how was it that so many figures in the Third Reich have this connection with South America? How how can we explain that? It's a very good question, and before I begin, I just want to apologise for the fact that I have a nest of sparrows living in my office above my head, and uh, so if you hear some cheeping and tweeting going on, that's what that's all about. But, so it's a little sort of charming rural backdrop to my words, yes. I hope, while we're I, I, talking about the grimness of Nazis. Yes. I, um, uh, to go back to your question, though, 
South America wasn't the only place that Nazis liked running away to. I mean, there, there were other favoured retirement destinations for your Nazis, such as the Middle East, uh, which was quite popular. Spain was quite popular for a while. But yes, I think in the public imagination or the popular imagination, then certainly um, it's, it's South America, it's Argentina, it's Brazil, are the two big countries. Yeah. Um, now, the reason for why they went to South America is that there were well-established German communities in those countries um, for about 50 to 60 years, mm -hmm. there had been a vast amount of um, kind of agrarian-based emigration from Germany, from right. Austria, to Patagonia, especially in southern Argentina, in, in, in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And so by the 1930s, you had very, very large German communities um, serving, uh, uh, you know, living and existing over there. Right. And you also had some extremely large Nazi um, Ausland organisations, foreign organisations there in the 30s as well. Mm -hmm. I think if anybody remembers Das Boot, uh, which I'm sure many listeners to this will have, will have seen, there's a, I seem to remember there's a, there's a blonde German naval officer serving on the submarine who, who's actually from Argentina. Yeah. And that wouldn't have been uncommon. So a lot, you know, Argentina was kind of, it wasn't a colony, but it was a very popular place. So after the war, where's a good place to go and scuttle off to? Well, go and join your fellow countrymen uh, on the other end of the planet. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, if you've gone to Patagonia, you'll realise there are towns there that feel more German than Germany, yeah. uh, especially Bariloche. Uh, and you could be walking around Bavaria. You know, it's all very gemutlich and the shops sell bratwurst and, and you know, re yeah. really you could be back in Europe. So that's the basic reason. OK. And so what was the um, the relationship of Nazi um, uh, emigres, if you will, to the, the regimes the, in, in places like um, Argentina uh, and Brazil, to what extent were the regimes aware of who was entering um, their country and to what extent were they um, complicit with that? Right, and I think the country we need to look at here specifically because it was the most you know, favourite port of call for your fleeing Nazi was Argentina. Yes. And, and some of the initial research carried out um, about the Peron, Juan Peron's regime's complicity was carried out by an excellent journalist called Uki Goni. Um, and I, I used some of his research as the basis for what I then went on to do with my book, Hunting Evil, yeah. uh, which is my, in my account of how the Nazis escaped and, and how they were tracked down or not. I suspect we'll come on to that. But yes, yeah, so certainly um, Peron was a fascist. Um, as is well known. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, we had no objections to fascists coming into his country. Mm -hmm. uh, Argentina had actually only technically been at war uh, with the Third Reich, and I think it had declared war on Nazi Germany one month before the end of the war in Europe. <laughs> yeah. So it had been, you know, it, so it eventually was a de facto ally. Yeah. And so Perón uh, was very happy to have uh, some of these men. Some of them had quite a bit of money. Um, also, so they were politically uh, uh, at home there. They were uh, financially welcome. Also, a lot of fleeing Nazis had technical expertise. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, they were able to provide uh, uh, know-how for, for, for various projects that Perón was trying to get underway, especially um, a form of nuclear power. Um, which ended up being sort of disastrous, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, but don't forget, you know, Argentina wasn't the only uh, country exploiting Nazi Germany's uh, technical know-how. Of course, the Americans were doing it, the Brits were doing it, 
Uh, and of course, it's the exploitation of Werner von Braun that gets mm-hmm. the United States to the moon. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've got to be very careful before we wrap Perron over the knuckles. But certainly, no, it was very much ask no questions. Uh, you know, you're a German coming into Argentina between 1945 and 1950 on a Red Cross passport. Chances are you were a bad boy. Yeah. Um, there was, as I remember it, um, evidence that emerged, I think, in the 1990s with uh, Eva Perón's signatures over various um, uh, sort of immigration papers uh, that she, she personally signed. Um, the, so what was the route? Um, how, if, if you were... Um, a, what's a, the tour bureau? What's the, what's the sort of, you know, what, what, if you wanted to retrace the steps, how you'd do it? Yes. Well, there were lots of different routes, um, but the most sort of notorious route um, is starts off at some, somewhere in Germany, um, and then you make your way to the next village or the next town. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you and I are Nazis on the run. This is, this is what we're going to do. Um, now, first of all, what I'd like to nail here, um, and which is important, is this whole idea of the Odessa, which I assume you've heard of. Um, yeah, um, and the Odessa, which is popularised in, in the book and then subsequent film, uh, the book by Frederick Forsyth, of course, um, supposedly stands in German for the organisation of former SS men. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise, uh, like Werner von Braun, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that if you're going to create a secret Nazi society of former SS men, you're not going to call it the organisation of former SS men no. uh, or SS members. No. So actually, Odessa was basically a, a disinformation campaign carried out by the Soviets to promote the idea that the West was harbouring these people. Yeah. It, it's largely nonsense, um, but it makes a good tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you would do is... There would be informal networks all over the country. So, for example, uh, if I'm trying to escape or you and I are trying to escape to the next town, well, we, we may know of a, a, a fellow Nazi who, who, who might be able to sort of help us out. Um, and, and you work your way down what is an informal structure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's an old boys network, effectively. You know, yeah. well, you were at the same school together, so we'll help each other. We are in an SS, we'll help each other. Mm-hmm. Those loyalties run deep. They've been running for decades. Um, because, you know, the Nazis came to power in 33, but, you know, the SA and the SS and the Nazi party had existed, uh, you know, a, a good 10 years before that. Sure. So um, the, these had been decade-long loyalties, yeah. decade-long loyalties. And so you would then make your way, ultimately, to the Alps. That would be your big barrier if you were heading south. Hmm. And, yes, there were guides who would take you um, across the Alps. And Joseph Mengele, who's the subject of my next book, um, you know, walked over uh, uh, the Brenner Pass in about the space of an hour or two. My wife and I have done the same route. I've trodden the same route. Got some nice pictures I put in my book. Um, very pretty walk it is too. It doesn't take a long time to get from Austria into Italy. No. Uh, it's not a difficult walk. Um, and from there, you then make your way maybe south to, to Genoa, the mm-hmm. Italian port. Um, and it, it, it's along the way you are provided with documentation, largely either by the Red Cross, uh, you're using a false name, and you're being certified under your false name by maybe a friendly Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot is said about the Roman Catholic Church complicity with Nazism. It's a huge topic. My argument is there was no sense that the Catholic Church as a corporate entity helped Nazis, yeah. but certainly there were Catholic priests who did. 
And one of the most celebrated was a man called Bishop Alois Houdal, who was head of the Austro-German Seminary in Rome, part of the Vatican. And he certainly did provide papers and documentation for fleeing Nazis. Mm. Amongst them, a man called Franz Stangl, mm. who some will know was the commandant of Treblinka. Yes. In which about 800 to 900,000 Jews were murdered. Um, and as such, he's probably one of the greatest mass murderers of history. Mm. Um, and I found his documentation in the Houdal archive in Rome. Right. So, yes, and then you get to Genoa with your passport and you would get on board a boat to Genoa and six to eight weeks later, you would end up in Buenos Aires with right. your false papers. You were nodded through to your new life. Right. So this was the kind of classic route. And what, talking about numbers here, um, how many do you think, I mean, it might be difficult to, to give a full figure, but how many do we think actually made it out? Well, that is a very good question because there is no kind of, you know, existing formal, digitised, documented, catalogued Argentina immigration papers no. <laughs> to tell us, right, it's, you know, 26,312. Mm. Um, You've got to be aware of the fact that the volume of criminality was huge. And wow. if you look at the nascent United Nations War Crimes Commission's uh, wanted lists, you know, I've got a copy of it here, a, a facsimile copy of it here. It's about five, six hundred pages thick hmm. with about 50 names on each page. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one British war crimes investigator said they were simply unprepared for the volume of criminality. Yeah. Certainly we're talking of, of tens of thousands um, going to different places all over the world. But, yeah, maybe not tens of thousands, maybe maybe ten to twenty thousand, but you know, not not hundreds of thousands. No, no. Um, but you've also got to remember that a lot of these Nazis, some of them were well healed yeah. uh, and had kind of looted the bank before they left. Mm -hmm. but there were a lot who didn't have a lot of money, and, and they ended up in in very menial roles right. uh, in Argentina and Brazil. So uh, you know, it's it's always tempting to think about the mythology of Nazis you know, in Argentina and Brazil and South America, mm. uh, which is of a kind of fourth Reich, whereas actually the reality that these people were living in was very different. Yeah. Now, if you were to take the, the, the vast majority of those who um, kind of uh, slipped beneath the radar, the, those who were um, complicit in not just the Holocaust, but in the kind of the devastation of the Soviet Union and, and, and um, other, uh, other crimes... Of course, the majority of those people would have actually stayed in Germany. Um, the uh, you know throughout the the kind of the fifties, sixties, and seventies, whenever uh, former German um, uh, SS guards were put on trial, they weren't extradited from Brazil. They were found in in sort of Stuttgart, um, yes. and so there's a there's a whole kind of other other side of this story about um, the inability to bring Nazis to justice. That uh, I mean, the 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 kind of the boys from Brazil side of things is really kind of the, the very sort of as I said, mythologized uh, spy novel kind of version of things. But in in reality, most um, if you look at the kind of the fairly um, ineffectual denazification of uh, the, the the four Allied zones. Well, actually, the Soviets did it quite well, but um, <laughs> that's a slightly different conversation. But um, a great many people uh, were able to just reassimilate themselves back into urban life with, with big consequences for Germany later down the line. Um, that's, that's, that's an interesting other, other sort of... Yes, it is. I, I, you're absolutely right that 
actually, most Nazis didn't need to hightail it, you know, across the Atlantic <laughs> to the Southern Hemisphere. You know, you were probably better off just staying put, yeah. uh, keeping quiet, um, either if you had some useful intelligence volunteering or service to the British, French or American or Russian intelligence agencies, that would give you a kind of free pass for any mm-hmm. bad stuff you'd done in the past. Yeah. Uh, that's obviously morally difficult, but, you know, the new enemies, uh, you know, the new enemy was the Soviet Union and if you have a Nazi criminal in front of you who's going to give you some decent information about your new enemy, well, yeah. you're going to have to kind of deal with somebody you don't like. Well, there's that's um, how intelligence works, and it's not pretty. Well, there's a... But, um, I was, beg your pardon. I was going to say, there's a fascinating bit in um, Post-War by Tony Judd, where he basically, yeah. he basically says that um, in the Soviet-occupied zones, the former Gestapo men who hadn't been rounded up and shot were basically said... There's a train leaving to Siberia in half an hour, or you can help form this new organisation that's going to become the Stasi later on. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, here's your copy of Karl Marx and the works of Stalin. Get reading. And there were some <laughs> remarkably speedy <laughs> converts. So to... What are you going to do? What yeah. are you going to do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so certainly coercion was there as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, most people were, were, you know, were going to. You know, whoever, whoever won the fight, you're going to work for the winner. You're not going to work for the loser. No. So I, I think that the 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 question was also about the fact that you have these sort of more modest individuals who've committed war crimes who may have um, shot a downed RAF pilot or um, blah 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 blah, and and there, there there were ineffectual attempts to bring them to justice. I mean, I spoke to a man called Lieutenant Colonel Nielsen, who lives quite near me, or used to live quite near me in Wiltshire. Mm. He was head of the British War Crimes Investigation Team, a half-colonel at the time, and I mentioned about the United Nations War Crimes list that I made reference to earlier in our conversation, Nick, and he had never heard of these lists, and these were the wanted lists, and he never had them. So the whole thing, you know, in the chaos of post-war Germany was all a bit you know, chaotic, you know, bit ineffectual. The people working for the war crimes investigations units weren't necessarily the pick of the bunch. No. Um, getting around Germany, as you might imagine, was pretty difficult. Mm. Um, the winters were tough in the late 40s. Uh, roads were in a terrible state of repair. Um, it was very difficult gaining access to pathologists, digging up remains, gathering evidence. Yeah. I mean, what you're trying to do is, is, is carry out about 100,000 man yeah. And a single manhunt requires an enormous amount of resources, as we know. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you're doing 100,000 manhunts around Germany and trying to rebuild it, trying to denazify it, mm. you know what? People just wanted to get on with their lives. The war was costly. It was over. And people didn't want to be defined by it anymore. No. And there was a sense that things needed to be wound up. Yeah. So by about 48, 49, the British war crimes team was wound up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't tokenism but it was felt that ultimately this could go on for decades and frankly what was the point and also even Churchill himself had had issued a kind of warning I think it was during the war or just afterwards saying you know the the more we bang on the more we're gonna the light is going to be turned on us Mm. what crimes did we commit Mm -hmm. us the Americans you know and so on and so forth so you know this idea of Victor's justice there were some on the winning side who felt uneasy about that. Yeah. And it was also felt that Nuremberg hadn't necessarily put a line underneath it, no. but it's shown certainly that um, there was some atonement done in, in a justicial fashion. Yeah. There's a, a terrific <laughs> book by uh, Dermot Jeffries called Hell's Cartel. I'm not sure if you've um, read it. It's, it's about the, the industrialists' trial of 1947. Yeah. 
And the thing that's, that's I always find really interesting about that is that it, the industrialist's trial is the only trial that really is actually about the Holocaust. Yeah. Everything else was about um, the preemptive wars of aggression against Britain and, and France and the Low Countries and, uh, and, and Europe. Um, and finally, um, the, the industrialist's trial, the trial of I.G. Farben, was, was the one yeah. where they could actually prove that slave labour had been in, involved. And, it was, and obviously the slave labour, you know, 99% of it had been Jewish. Um, and it, that, that shines a, 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 a real light on kind of the, the, the post-war um, prerogatives when it came to this idea of, of justice. Not, yes. not to suggest that there was some sort of, you know, um, kind of anti-Semitic intent on the half of the Allies, certainly not. But there is um, uh, the, the, the kind of the focus of, of what you find, the, the wrongs you're actually trying to right. Yeah. Um, it was a lot different than I think the popular perception is now. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I also think, can you remind me what year the industrialist trial 47. was? 47. Right, 47. But the idea of the Holocaust, which you made reference to there, yeah. it, it wasn't kind of cemented in, no, in, no. In, the, in the widespread imagination, you know, in the way it is today. Yeah. Um, and, and it really wasn't until the trial of Adolf Eichmann in yeah. Israel um, in the early 60s in, in which the idea of the Holocaust starts becoming widespread. Yeah. And there's a kind of a more widespread feeling you know, sort of transmitted, you know, by sort of people who claim to be Nazi hunters, that that this 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 crime this was a genocide, and it just wasn't just the horrible things that happened in the camps. Sure. I think that people weren't really aware of quite how structural this program, this horrific program, had been. And so, yes, clearly at Nuremberg, the, the tribunal, there were. References to you know, charges for crimes against humanity, but you know there, well, there wasn't the kind of mm. Holocaust branding, if you like. Yeah. So yes, I, th- I think you're right. I think there's various doctors' trials uh, um, make reference to obviously things done against Jews in the camps. Um, yeah. But yes, certainly I, I I think you're right. And this also feeds into what I think is a really important point. It's this idea that these Nazi war criminals, people like Eichmann. Sitting in, you know, unmolested in 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 Argentina, Brazil, Joseph Mengele, the famous doctor, uh, quote unquote, of Auschwitz, living in Buenos Aires, his name in the phone book under the under the name Jose Mengele. Mm. I mean, you know, not really disguised. A lot of people say, "Oh well, the the British and the CIA, they they just left them alone. The Germans left them alone." Well, you know, frankly, whose job was it to hunt these people? Mm. Um, They'd committed no crimes against the British or the Americans. Yeah. Um, the Israelis was 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 a fledgling state. Israel was a fledgling state mm. with present day enemies on her own doorstep to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, she didn't have the resources, you know, to, to go around hunting every single um, person who had committed uh, 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 grievous acts against against. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's Jewish people. Yeah. Um, you know, they had to get on with fighting the wars on their doorsteps. And that's why the Eitan thing was, was extraordinary, because there were very few actions carried out by Israeli intelligence mm. against former Nazis. Well, that's what I wanted to come on to, because there is... Um, there's a lot about the the abduction of Adolf Eichmann that, uh, again, it sort of passes into into modern folklore in a way. Yeah. But by and large, even you know, nation states are rarely motivated by revenge. Not that people don't feel revenge or feel grievance or or rage yeah. or whatever, but normally you can have. Um, nations where all sorts of dreadful things have have happened to the population uh, and then and they fairly soon afterwards their leadership have to be pragmatic uh, and and are pragmatic about what can be achieved but in yeah. the case of 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 Eichmann uh, this this complicated and quite risky uh, intelligence operation to to abduct him so it's, it's it's kind of like an outlier in in sort of uh, world affairs, really. That I can't think of many parallels yes. of of going to that length. Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, you're but, right, but it, it is extraordinary, and, and I and I think that is there. There is. I mean, the Mossad certainly. I mean, I I read about. Oh, I can't remember now, but about Mossad operations against you know other enemies, um, and I think certainly it, it was very rare. There was another. Um, uh, well, there was an assassination attempt, a successful one carried out. Uh, uh, against uh, a Latvian called Herbert Zuckers, uh, which was successfully carried out in in the sixties by the Mossad um, in Montevideo. Herbert Zuckers was a, 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 a vile man who is known as the, the the hangman of Riga, such oh, as yeah. the number of Jews he had killed in in in, in that Baltic state. Um, so yes, but even even then, still very very rare that. Uh, you, you as a your fleeing Nazi, really expect someone to be knocking on your door in the middle of the night and, and dragging you out, and shooting you. Mm. I mean, certainly there were members of the Jewish Brigade in the British Army mm-hmm. who carried out freelance Nazi hunting operations in forty five, forty six. Yes, uh, in Austria, and I, I write about them in my book. Yes, 
Um, but th- those were ad hoc, and they, they weren't done in the name of an Israeli state because it didn't, Israeli state didn't exist. But no. they were certainly done in the name of the Jewish people. Um, and it also brings on this, this very complicated figure of Simon Wiesenthal, if you want mm-hmm. to talk about him, because certainly in my book, I, I do give him a very hard time because I, I regard him as a sort of... Uh, 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 an appallingly sort of inflated figure who was really a self-publicist and yes. really didn't help matters at all. But we, we can talk about that if you like. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's a key figure in, in this whole... Um... In, in, in this whole narrative, um, and in my my I, in my previous work, I, I can't do it now because of various commitments. I, I worked as a Holocaust educator for the Holocaust Education Trust, and I've been back and forth to um, Auschwitz dozens dozens of times, and so I've had numerous conversations um, with people far more learned than, than myself on, on the subject of, of Simon Wiesenthal, and. He's he's one of those figures who, um, over time, you know, he was a, a kind of uh, a, a, I suppose, a kind of a, an iconic figure uh, in the, I suppose, the sixties and seventies of um, the this sort of dogged search for justice. But as you examine, uh, and and as he's critically examined over time, yes, this this figure of this uh, kind of rather egomaniacal self-publicist. Um, uh, it, it emerges. Um, what was his actual contribution to bringing Nazi war criminals to justice, if, if anything at all? Well, I give him a real pasting in my book, and I was very worried about it because clearly he's just kind of, as you say, an iconic figure. He's an iconic Jewish figure, and you know, you, you run a real risk that if you start laying into people like Simon Wiesenthal, that people may p- misperceive you to be anti-Semitic in some way. Yeah. And, it, and especially sort of, dare I say it, sort of posh British historians like me, they're just going to think, well, you're sort of another David Irving type. Or, you yeah. know, why have you got it in for Wiesenthal? Didn't he do a good job? When I, when I originally sold my book to my publisher, I, I had always... Put in my proposal to my book that Wiesenthal was a massive figure, an important figure, and you know what I I thought was the great man that he was. But as I went through the archival matter, some of which was from the Simon Wiesenthal Centre, it became increasingly clear to me this man was a bullshitter. Um, He was a self-publicist, and he claimed to have tracked down hundreds, if not a thousand Nazis. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, the, the figure is. You know, less than ten, maybe even less than six. Yeah. Um, he basically made out that, that he was the only person in the world hunting these people down, and he was sort of popularised in, in in various films. Yeah. Uh, like the Odessa File, like the Boys from Brazil, um, and so he sort of you know the, the romantic image of a Holocaust survivor, which indeed he was, really took hold in the popular imagination. Yeah. And in the wake of the Eichmann um, uh, uh, kidnap. Uh, where there was an information vacuum about who had carried out this operation because mm-hmm. the Israelis didn't publicly admit they had, yeah. and they certainly weren't going to admit to how they'd done it, um, you suddenly have people like Wiesenthal stepping out of the woodwork saying, it was me, I was the one who tracked him down, I was the one who did it. You, you know, it just wasn't true, really not true. You, you, there are archives that I can bore you to pants yeah. about, bore you to tears about. I suppose uh, if you're... Um, saying if- it wasn't. If you're an intelligent, the, the director of an intelligence agency, and you you have a, a kind of a 
a self-publicist shooting their mouth off about something you've done, it's actually quite helpful because yeah, exactly. nobody exactly. has to ask what you did. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly he was a source for Mossad for many things. You know, he had lots of tittle-tattle about former Nazis kicking around. You know, he was, a, he was, a, he was just another source for, yeah. for the Mossad. And the, 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 sort, the material he did give them, and such as it was, was mm. woefully inaccurate and outdated. Um, and, and there was far more... Uh, far better intelligence coming from other sources than Wiesenthal. Um, you know, Wiesenthal never went to Latin America. No. Um, he never went to the ABC cafe no. in Buenos Aires where Eichmann and Mengele would have a bit. You know, it was very easy to go to Latin America. And you do have other Nazi hunters in the forms of a, a very brave couple who are still alive, Serge and Beata Klaasfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are French-German couple who, who spent much of the 70s and 80s um, at great personal risk going to these Latin American dictatorships and haranguing them about the likes of Klaus Barbie, who were, who were yeah. living more or less openly in these societies. Yeah. Um, and they were really, you know, I have a lot of time for Beata Klaasfeld. You know, she really did walk the walk and talk the talk. Wiesenthal sure. uh, did a lot of talking, but not a lot of walking. And as one Israeli ambassador said, Wiesenthal was a Nazi hunter, but not a Nazi finder. Yeah. And I think that probably sums him up. I, I don't want to bang on for too long no. about it. Uh, 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 it. It's all in the book. Yeah. But certainly, he's, um, he is a problematic figure as far as I'm concerned. Well, that, and, and the thing is, that's what you... I, I genuinely believe that's what you have to engage with uh, as, as a, a historian. Problematic figures... Um, with big legacies um, that are often, you know, sacred cows. Yes. Um, you have to be honest about them uh, and look at them uh, as objectively uh, uh, as you can. Um, I think the, the final thing um, that I, I wanted to talk about was um, there's a lot of very interesting stuff written about, and this actually ties into part of the story of the Odessa file. Um, so we have to leap into uh, fiction for a moment. Part of the kind of the subtext of the, the Odessa file is that the, the main protagonist in, is a, a young man in the 1960s who yep. discovers that his, his father was murdered by the SS during, uh, during the war. There had been a German soldier shot by an SS man during, during the war. And there's um, a, a, a bit in the... That's, Freddie, Frederick Forsyth obviously researches very, very well because you see it's coming up in social histories of Germany time and time again of the, the main protagonist talking to his mother, saying, what did Dad do during the war? And the mother saying, oh, don't go over all that again. And that was really, really common of, you know, yeah. we, we had this awful time, it ended very badly, I don't want to talk about it. And it's because, well, you know, Dad was probably a mass murderer. Um, <laughs> and yes. the, uh, well, you know, <laughs> Dad yeah. did some stuff in Russia and we don't go there. Um, and, and part of this is to do with the failure to bring um, large numbers of Nazis to book, um, to really give a, a kind of um, a, a Germany a, a completely clean slate. I mean, I think of all the countries in Europe now, Germany's probably done the most to address its Holocaust past because the responsibility spreads far, far and wide. But um, the, you, you have a period in the, the 60s and 70s of uh, student unrest and things like the, the Red Army faction and... Uh, bombings and that kind of thing and it, it's in part it's due to many many things but in part it's due to the fact that you have all these skeletons in society's closet um and the uh, and you know all these these questions that young people had of you know what was it exactly that your generation did 
And that, that for me, is one of the really fascinating questions about um, the, 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 you know, the, the shadow of guilt hanging over post-war Germany. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're, you're right, and I think that Forsyth, when I interviewed him for my book, you know, he did say that some of the encounters with officialdom that Peter Miller, his hero, had uh, were basically just direct reportage of what Forsyth had, had had when he was researching the book. Yeah. Um, doors can't help you, you know, probably your mysterious phone call. Um, yes, and, and certainly I've, I've got a, a very interesting book called The Brown Book, which is actually published, I can see it on my shelf now, published by the East Germans uh, in the 60s, showing that the, how West Germany was, was, was riddled with former Nazis in politics, the mm-hmm. judiciary, so on and so forth. And one has to take it with a little bit of pinch of salt, because obviously it was published by a communist regime that was desperate to prove that the other half of Germany was was, was worse than it. Yeah. So I, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that denazification um, had only being partially achieved. I think you've got the obvious problems that if you completely denazify, you're going to be left with no one to sort yeah. of run things because there were so many people were members. Yeah. And I and I think that there was just this you know, appalling incident, I think, in what was called the Monopole Grimberg coal mine, in which we, the British, hadn't allowed Nazis to, um, former Nazis to run the mine, and there was a fire on the ground. And the only people who could really sort of save these poor hundreds of miners trapped underground were the kind of former Nazi senior technicians in the mine and various executives. And they had all been denazified. They weren't allowed to work there. Hmm. And so I think that the British officer in charge said, I can't bring these men back today because they, they've been de- they're being denazified. Hmm. And that the men in the coal mine died as a result of this sort of slavish, almost sort of moronic uh, adherence to denazification. So it just sort of shows you that actually... Uh, uh, you know, you you could actually threaten lives by removing useful members of the community, and, and some people have joined the Nazi Party out of lip service. Well, um, and of course that you know, that these were categorised. But were... certainly, yes, there is a sort of popular idea that West Germany was, was riddled with former Nazis in the higher places who had this sort of kind of old boys network uh, to help each other and help cover up each other's crimes. I mean, that that's certainly true. I think that it's the younger generation. Were, there was a lot of resentment towards the younger generation because, of course, they were innocent. Um, and, and, of course, it's very easy for, for, for people like us, Nick, to to be very morally comfortable. Yeah. And we're both Brits, so we were on the winning side yes. and we are on the side that wasn't fascism. Um, and, you know, we never had to sort of, you know, we've never had as people, uh, apart from the exception of the Channel Islands, had to sort of engage with the realities of living in a regime, mm-hmm. engage with the realities of living under the jackboot, because as you say, the, the, the complicity in the Holocaust wasn't just reserved to, to Germany and Austria. No. Um, and so therefore, it's, it, it's very easy to make these sort of moral judgments and, and pat ourselves on the head and say, we wouldn't have done that. And after the war, you know, you know, how would we have come to terms with it? it, it these are very difficult questions. Yeah. And they do run very deeply. So, yes, I, I, I'm not forgiving uh, uh, cover-up and complicity, but certainly I, I think we need to understand mm. it, need to understand that people don't behave brilliantly when no. they're faced with these incredibly difficult moral questions. Well, this is, this is it. And the, the occupying forces, I think, very quickly came to see that they had um, to... Um, build new states with the pieces they'd been left and that there were no uh, attractive answers um, 
uh, there was, I remember at, I think it was the Yalta conference where um, Stalin, half joking to Churchill, said, well, all you do is, the, the way you deal with this is you just shoot the top 50,000 members of the regime. Churchill, and Churchill said, no, you know, this is an unconscionable act. You, you, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and, and so in, in, instead, you, uh, again, you, you, you have to build societies with um, the, the rather unpleasant pieces that you've been left. And there's a, um, in, in terms of like um, Nazidom or, or, or kind of uh, being uh, this, this thing called a Nazi, there yeah. is there are uh, ranges of engagement, and then probably everybody in Germany had some degree of engagement with the regime, from being a party member to uh, a party activist to an, an actual perpetrator of crimes, to simply a, a reluctant bystander thinking. Well, this is all pretty awful, and um, this war is going to end badly. But I suppose we best best just get on with it and muddle through. Yeah. Um, and and being able to just you know as a a, a a British or an American officer being able to discern who's who is is a is a, a virtually impossible task. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, you know, and certainly some of the Germans I'm dealing with were very sophisticated intelligence officers who ran rings around you know a sort of twenty four year old, you know. British Army intelligence officer from from sort of you know Bedfordshire, yeah. you know, that had no idea what he was dealing with. So mm. you know, the people we we were out of our depth with some of these people. We really were. Yes, yes. Well, um, what I'd like to do, um, guy, is obviously you've, you've got a book about um, uh, Joseph Mengele coming out. Um, is that later this year or is it twenty twenty? No, no, no. I haven't even started writing a word. Yet. Oh right, okay. So, <laughs> so, so. so the, the, if people want to be introduced to my uh, uh, my work, um, they they could kick off with with hunting evil, which is my account of how the Nazis escaped after the war, or, or how they were tracked down, or not. Okay. Um, and now I'm just starting work. I've just signed my deal, a, a new two book deal, to do a book about Joseph Mengele, uh, who does feature in Hunting Evil, um, uh, which will be coming out in January 2022. Okay. So a bit of a wait. Great. And then I, about a year later, I will hopefully also will be publishing uh, in time a, a history of the Gestapo. Right. So to plenty of other reasons to talk to you, Nick. Great. Well, we'd love to have you back on the podcast. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll, 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 we'll chat again soon. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's Hunting Evil in all good bookshops. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll finish there, Guy. And I'd just like to say on behalf of all the listeners... Thank you so much for your time and your your knowledge and your uh, uh, excellent repartee. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to being on again. Thank you. Thanks very much, Guy. So thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we will finish there. And uh, you can, of course, catch up with us at the Explaining History Facebook group. And uh, if you're so inclined, follow us on uh, Patreon. Uh, The podcast is funded by... A number of generous patrons and, of course, a tiny little trickle of ad revenue. So anything that you can contribute, always gratefully received. Thanks very much, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.